0: So I'm going to start in verse 31. Here we go. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he said for them, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with them, for you, you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear... And a lamb, and and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Biblical narratives like this are usually pretty sparse in their details, but not in this story. This story takes a long time. There's 58 verses, and it starts this way. The purpose is clearly to impress, because there's a lot of detail And it goes this way, it tells us that the Philistine army is on one ridge and the Israelite army is on the other ridge. And a champion, a man, a giant of a man comes down into the valley in between from the Philistine army and he stands before Israel. And we don't know exactly how big he was, but mountain, that term ought to be about right. On the low side, people say that he was at least seven feet tall. On the high side, some say he was 11 feet tall or better. Most commentators say he was about nine feet, nine inches. And if he's playing basketball and he's on your team, that's all well and good, right? But he's not playing basketball and he's not on your team. He's on the Philistine's side. He's coming down and he's picking a fight and he wanted to win. Hand-to-hand combat was the challenge. To the death, pick a man, send him down to me. Now, the Philistines had a monopoly on metalworking. They had superior technology, and it was kind of on display in this figure, on this figure actually, uh, before the Israelite army. There was lots of metal. It was mainly bronze. Uh, There was a spearhead that he had that was made of iron, but everything else is bronze. His helmet is bronze and it protected his head. It will not be protecting his face too much. That'll prove costly in a second. But his upper body is covered with a coat of mail. It weighs 126 pounds just by itself. Clearly, he's not going to be susceptible to too many weapons aimed at his chest. His legs are also protected by bronze armor. And if that's not enough, he has a shield that's so big that somebody else has to carry it. And it goes in front of him. And in other words, this man's defenses gave all the appearance of being impenetrable. And he's outfitted from head to toe in this glittering, shimmering bronze armor. And as weapons of offense... He's got a sword and he's got an enormous javelin made of brass. And then there's his spear, the metal head of his spear, the point of the spear, weighed 17 or 18 pounds. So imagine a big stick with a really heavy bowling ball on it and you've about got it. And so he's absolutely terrifying. He looks up the Israelite ridge And he's so terrifying that none of the Israelite soldiers want to fight him. Psychologically, he already has the advantage. We could say psychologically, he's already won. Because this is a death wish for anybody to come out into the valley and take him on. There is no way that they will win. And he stood there like a one-man, indestructible fortress. And he had a question, and he had a proposition. We couldn't fit all of the text into our bulletin today, so you're going to have to probably actually turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 to get all of this. But in verse 8 and 9, he says, here's the question. Goliath shouts up at the Israelite army, Why have you come out here? It's a threatening question. It's a provoking question. It pokes at the inactivity of Israel's army because the they they all know why they're there, right? That's a cr- pretty crazy question to ask. Well, we're here because you have come and you've tried to invade our land and we don't want you to. That's why we're here. But Goliath says, "Why are you here?" And it speaks to Israel hasn't done anything. And then he says, "Choose a man. If you're unwilling to come down here and fight our army, then then I have a proposition for you. Choose one guy." Send him down, and we'll fight. We'll do a man-to-man thing, mano a mano. We'll go at it, and if I win, then we win. Our whole army wins, and, and you serve us. But if your man wins, then you all win, and we serve you. The question today that we have to ask ourselves as we kind of picture Goliath looking up the Israelite army and asking this question and provoking them like this is what do you do when your greatest fears are inevitable what do you do when there's a giant right in front of you and there's really no way to avoid it maybe your future you've planned for your future my goodness you have put all the X's and O's in place And now your future is here, but those plans that you put in place aren't quite working out. And that's a giant in front of you. What in the world do you do when your worst nightmares come true? Maybe you've taken care of yourself. Maybe you've eaten all that you're supposed to eat. you've, You've done the vegetable thing. You've done the CrossFit thing. But somewhere along the way, your heart did not get the message. And your health is failing. And that's a giant in front of you right now. Maybe you want so desperately for that relationship to work out. You want so much not to be alone, but the more you try to make it work, the more you isolate yourself, and there is this Goliath in front of you. What do you do? This story speaks to our fear. It speaks to what to do with our greatest nightmares because the one, there are all kinds of options that we're given in this story. And the one that we choose will make all the difference. And today, the, the answer about fear that we get is the Christian answer of dealing with fear. How does Christianity, when our giants are in front of us, what does Christianity tell us? How does it help us to deal with those mountains that are in front of us, provoking us? and there's no way to avoid them. What do we do? Well, let's back up, and let me give you the thumbnail of the story. This is a very famous story, the story of David and Goliath. How many of you have heard it before? Yes, okay, lots of hands. Maybe you haven't, and so let me give you a very thumbnail sketch. There are 58 verses in chapter 17 that cover this story, but... um, we don't have time for all of that. I, I challenge you to read that through this week and get the full story. Here's the thumbnail, very brief. David was a shepherd boy, probably not a boy, maybe 17, 18, maybe 21, something like that. And thanks to Veggie Tales, we know that he brought a pizza to his brothers at the front who were fighting uh, the Philistines. They were on the ridge with the Israelites. Uh, David brings the pizza in. He sees Goliath. He sees Goliath make this challenge. Everybody else is scared of Goliath. Goliath scares all the Israelite army, the Saul and everybody. But David wasn't scared. David knew that his God was stronger. David knew that God would help him. And so he fights Goliath. He uses one stone. He puts it in a sling. He swirls it around. He implants the stone in Goliath's forehead. Goliath falls down. He uses Goliath's own sword to chop off Goliath's head. The Israelites win. God's people are saved. Story, right? Okay, there it is. And so there are some main players in the story that are really important for us to understand. If we're going to answer this question, what do we do with those giants that are in front of us? The first player is the one we've already mentioned, Goliath. He comes down into the valley. He, he provokes the Israelite army. Um, he is called the champion of the Philistines in the text. And the, the word champion literally means the one in between. In other words, he was the one designated to go and to be in between the two armies. He's the one in between, and he's challenging the Israelites, to send somebody to, to be their in-between man, their champion. And he's basing everything on his past victories. He's He's got all of the outward um, stuff that he needs. He's got superior technology in every way, shape, form. He has the advantage. He is going to win. And so when he sees this little shepherd boy, this You know, teenager maybe come out of the Israelite ranks with no armor, with nothing. He's furious. He says, "Am I a dog that you that you come at me with sticks?" Because uh, David would have had just a shepherd's stick with him, besides his sling and his pouch. And Goliath is furious. And the message that we get, if we just see Goliath, if we identify with him, as to how to face our fear, is this: be big. Gain all the experience that you can. Develop your skills so that you are at the top of your game. And then, when you're at the top, gain all of the advantages that you can. Take all of the um, high-tech advantages that you can. Get, Get all of the things that will stack the deck so that you can guarantee success. And if you'll do that, then you won't have anything to fear. And Goliath becomes a smokescreen for denial. Sometimes we do that. There's, There's a giant in front of us, relationally, there's a giant in front of us, maybe our circumstances, maybe our health, something's going on. And we try to pretend like there's nothing there. We try to skirt around it. And that's a lot easier to do if we have really big muscles. If we think, if we have all the experience, if we have all the advantages, the easier it is. And if we take Goliath's way, then the way we on fear is to deny it. Just deny what we fear. Sweep it under the road, just deny it. Here's a second player in the text, David. David is emphasized all throughout this text as uh, weak, as small, okay? As a matter of fact, in his own family... He is so weak, so small, that he's banished to tend the sheep. That was kind of the lowest place on the totem pole. He had seven brothers. There were eight of them in his family. And the other seven brothers, a lot of them were fighting in the Israelite army. And he's the youngest. He's the weakest. He's the smallest. And so he is banished to tend the sheep in the North 40. And the amazing thing is... That his banishment, what seems to be a very cruel thing, what seems to be a, a, a real weakness, turns out to be the very thing that equips him to fight. It turns out to be the very thing that helps him, in the end, defeat Goliath. Because as he's out watching sheep, tending sheep, there are predators, right? There's lions, there's bears, is what he says. And he says... I learned how to defend my sheep. I learned how to kill lions and bears, if you can imagine that, a teenager doing that. And I became an expert at this. And the very thing that looked like a weakness on the outside became a strength, became an advantage. David didn't win against Goliath in spite of being the underdog. He won because he was the underdog, but I want you to look at how he defeated his fear. You see, it wasn't just with his own prowess, his own ability. It was also he had something else on his side. He had a bigger weapon than Goliath. He 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 says over and over in the text. He says, "I come in the name of the Lord of Hosts. I have the living God on my side, the God of the armies of Israel." And the common lesson that we draw, um, if we take David David's way of dealing with fear, is just to defeat it. Take your fear and defeat it. Use your weaknesses as advantages. And those times that you were thought you were out, you were just watching sheep, they will actually be, prove to be valuable beyond measure for helping you face giants. And in addition to that, it will be easier to do because you know you'll have God on your side to help. And so David says this. As he's standing in front of his giant, he says... I will strike you down today and I will cut off your head. And those are bold words from a shepherd boy who doesn't have a sword. But what happens? Because God is on his side. He strikes Goliath down. He uses Goliath's own sword to slay the giant, cut the head off. And we love that message because it plays to our dreams, right? We want to slay the dragon we want to be able to defeat what we fear and with god we get this message that that's always at least possible and i believe it is absolutely with god on our side it's always possible it's that's always true and yet usually we stop right here and i don't i think if we stop we miss it we miss what the text is actually steering to we're in great Danger if we miss what we're being steered to here. Because there's another player, and we have to understand this player in order to understand David. The third player is Saul. Saul himself. Saul is the king of Israel. He is in charge of the Israel troops up on the ridge. And Goliath comes down from the rank, Philistine ranks, and he challenges the Israelite people. And in verse 11, it says this, that Saul... And all the Israelites are dismayed and afraid. The word for dismayed means shattered. They are shattered. They are broken. They are crushed. Have you ever been there with your fears? With that thing that popped up that you weren't expecting, that circumstance that just presented itself, and your world came crumbling down. You were shattered. That's where Saul is. What? happens when your worst nightmare comes true. This was the worst case scenario for Saul. This was his worst nightmare. And not only did it happen once, we find out in the text that for 40 days this giant of a man came out every day, twice a day actually, and shouted up to the Israelites, choose a man, choose a man. And nothing was ever done. Saul is the king of the Israelite army. He doesn't even put a bad battle plan together, much less a battle plan together. And more than that, worse than that, Saul is actually the one who is called to fight. We see this in the text. But we also see it in an amazing place in a a piece of work called the Targum. The Targum is uh, what it existed in the first century. It was written in Aramaic, and when uh, rabbis would teach people these Old Testament stories, they would make additions and explanations, and that, they would write them down, and that was the Targum. It was written in Aramaic, which was Jesus's common; uh, it was the common language of the day. It's the language Jesus spoke, and in the Targum, uh, this story is uh, included with it: is Goliath. Speech that he makes up to the Israelite army. Okay, now it's fabricated, okay? All right? But it gives us a flavor. It does what it's supposed to do. It gives us a flavor of what's really going on. Listen to this speech. He says, He comes down the valley, imagine this mountain of a man. He says, I am Goliath, the Philistine of Gath, who slew the two sons of Eli the priest, Hophni and Phinehas, and carried away captive. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And I brought it to the house of my God, Dagon. And it was there in the cities of the Philistine for seven months. And moreover, in all of the land of the Philistines, I go forth at the head of the army. And we have been victorious in war. And we have cast down the slain as the dust of the earth. And hitherto, to this point. The Philistines have not honored me to make me a captain of over a thousand of them. But as for your children of Israel, what valiant deed has Saul, the son of Kish, of Gibeah, wrought for you that you would make him king over you? If he be a valiant man, let him come down and do battle with me. But if not, if he be a coward, then choose someone else today. Oh, man, think about being Saul. This giant of a man is saying, these Philistines haven't even made me a captain yet. And I'm calling your king to come down and fight. Goliath's threats are a direct challenge to Saul, most of all. Even in the biblical text, we see him shout up the mountain, Are you not servants of Saul? Then choose a man for yourselves. And it's a mock. It's a provocation that couldn't have been more clear. Because the Israelite people have already chosen their man. They did that when they asked for a king several chapters ago. They said, God, we need a king to be like all the other nations. And God said, okay, choose a guy. Who did they choose? Saul. Why? Because he was taller. He was... He was a foot taller and head and shoulders above every other, other person. He was a warrior. He was God's chosen person. He had the spirit of God in him. And he was the man. And now he does nothing. He's challenged. And there's silence. Not even a command for somebody else to go. And so in this, David happens along. And the step we fail to take is to see David fully. And it causes us to overlook Saul. And that's kind of my point today. Let me explain it this way. David comes, and he's trusting, and he's full of faith, and he's expertly equipped, right? He's um, full of the Spirit of God, and he has the expertise to actually slay this giant. And so, we see David, and when we see him rightly, what we need to see is also Saul, who is shattered, who is a coward. The coward needs something. The coward needs someone to go in his place. And so, David shows up and he's talking in ways that only someone with the spirit of God would talk and Saul faintly recognized that because he that used to be him he used to have the spirit the spirit of God we are told in chapter 16 kind of went away from Saul and it went into David because David was the anointed king of the future and so he shows up and nothing could prove that David was Israelite's future more than this battle with the Philistines. And Saul, Saul needs somebody to go because he's a coward. He should, but he won't. And he's in need. And David is the person to meet that need. We could say it this way. David is the substitute. And what we see in Saul is the opportunity to defer what we fear. To defer what we fear. And why can I say How can How can I say that? It's because Goliath, challenged one guy, one guy, give me one guy to come down. We'll do single combat and winner take all. And it was efficient. It was very cost effective for the army, right? Not a lot of casualty and loss. But only one could go. And that's the key for us. Only one person can go. And David is that one. He's specifically prepared. He's specially anointed for this moment by God. And it means for us at least this. That David is not fighting for, but as. If he won, all of the Israelites win. And if he dies, all of the Israelites die or become servants. Everything is riding on him and him alone. And that's why we can't just make David an inspiration to us when we come to this text. Because he didn't ask that of anyone on that day. As he's going down, he knows he's the only one that can go. He doesn't yell back up to the the Israelite army, hey, come be like me. Hey, come face your giants like I'm facing my giants. No, he was the only one that could go. And so he is the substitute. He becomes the representation, the embodiment of Israel. Whatever is ascribed to him is ascribed to Israel. There's a theological word that we use for this. It's called imputation. It's just a fancy word uh, and a way of saying that when one person is chosen, they represent a whole bunch of other people. And the things that are ascribed to that one person are also ascribed to the whole bunch of people behind him. And it's seen in David's words in verse 32. He, that's the first verse of your bulletin notes. He says this, let no man's heart fail today. Your servant will go. These are the words that David says to Saul. He says, no heart attacks today. Nobody's going to code on the table today because I'm going to go. Your servant will go in your place, Saul. What happens when our greatest fears become reality? What are we to do? Popular opinion tells us to take the Goliath approach. Just visualize yourself winning Squash your fears, do everything to, you can do to train yourself to be big enough to beat any fear that you might face, gain all the advantages, see the win, and there's no room for losing that way. And the problem with it that is that there's always a way to lose. You will lose eventually. It will happen. Popular churchiness tells you this. Face your fears and your giants like David. Rush at them. Find inspiration in David and emulate him. And in order to do this, you need to be really proficient at trying to fight giants. But you also need to have enough faith that God will help you win. Now, is that true? Absolutely it is. Yes. And there's no problem with us bringing our BBS kids in and saying, you know what? You have to have faith in God because with God, you are bigger than any giant you will face. That's a great message. The problem is it's not the only message here. And the problem is that the more we read the Bible, we see other people who were like David, who had all of the right things in place, and yet their giants beat them. David doesn't always win in the scripture. How do we deal with that? We have places like John the Baptist. John the Baptist does everything right. He's the precursor to Jesus. And he comes to the end of his life and he's facing his giant and he ends up getting his head cut off. We have people like Stephen who do everything right. They're very proficient at what they do. They have the spirit of God. They, they're going into battle and Stephen ends up under a pile of rocks in the book of Acts. He loses. James is the same way. He's beheaded. Jesus himself will do everything right. And yet be forced to a cross. See, eventually, this kind of theology only works until you lose, and eventually you will lose, and what do you do then? David and Goliath is not just an inspiring story about a little guy beating the big guy against overwhelming odds. It's not just about a 16 seed beating a one seed, finally, right? It's not that. Is it that? Yes. But it's not only that. The heart of the story is meant to teach us something much more valuable. The lesson is that everyone needs a substitute. We all do. And God is the one who pro- will provide us with one. And when we identify with Saul, we see very quickly that we need a substitute. And Goliath is the way through fear that fails. And David is the way through fear that That frees us because we have somebody who goes in our place, who is already gone as us, someone who has already won as us, someone who has already conquered our greatest enemy on our behalf. And that allows us to see David correctly, not as an example, but as a savior. David said, I will go. I will fight. Your servant will die. When today? Does that, that kind of substitution, does that kind of imputation, I'll go in your place, don't have a heart attack today, I'm going to fight for you, does that remind you of anyone else? Absolutely. In the boy David, in the shepherd David, we are pointed to the true David, the one who will ascend David's throne, the one whose kingdom will never end. And Jesus comes in our place, and he goes and he fights that greatest enemy that we will ever have, the enemy of death. All your other enemies, I don't care what they are, all your other enemies eventually end up in that one. And Jesus goes and he faces... That enemy as us. Jesus is our substitute. And he doesn't just face giants with us now. He does. He faced them for us. And that makes all the difference. Psalm 30 says this. Weeping and sorrow may last through the night. You may always have a giant in front of you. But joy comes in the morning. Jesus has already faced that giant for you. And because he has, we have no fear of them, even if they get the best of us. What if there's somebody who will go in your place and fight all of your worst nightmares for you? That's what the gospel invitation is. That's what Jesus invites us into because that's what he has done for us. And because... That giant, that giant of death is laying there with its head cut off. Those of us who are shaking in our boots like Saul, we have nothing to fear anymore. The cowards have nothing to fear because they have a champion. Father, I thank you that Jesus is our champion, our man in between. I thank you that he has gone to face our enemy and that He has won on our behalf. Jesus was perfectly qualified. He he was perfectly fit to execute a perfect plan so that all of our enemies would be crushed, so that we wouldn't be shattered, but they would be shattered. And how foolish is it of us today not to trust Him? Father, maybe there's somebody here today who needs to, for the very first time, See Jesus as their substitute. Father, would you open their eyes to this person who has served us in this way, who has given himself that we might live. Father, lead us all to receive life and victory, even in the worst of times, because Jesus has won it for us. And it's in the name of the substitute, the great Savior that I pray. Jesus. Amen.